0: Welcome to episode 39 of the FarmExec podcast. I'm Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of FarmExec Magazine, and our podcast host. FarmExec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C suite. On this week's episode, we're really excited. We had the pleasure of speaking with Apellis' CEO and co founder, Dr. Cedric Francois. And Cedric talks about his unusual pharma journey which has included research, clinical work, um, and then also the launch of two startups. So today he's here to share with us what he's learned along the way and how he's using that experience to improve lives. So we're excited for you guys to hear a little bit more from Cedric later on. This week's episode is sponsored by Finger Paint. So let's take a break to hear a quick word from our sponsor before we play Cedric's interview.
1: Broello.
2: What's Broello? It's a color no one has ever seen before. At Fingerpaint, we build brands that we're building a brand new, never before seen color. What color is your brand?
0: Hello, podcasters. Today, Lisa Henderson, our editorial director, and I will be interviewing Dr. Cedric Francois, CEO and co founder of Apelles Pharmaceuticals. Cedric has a really interesting background that he's going to share with us today. Thanks for joining us today, Cedric.
1: Thank you. I'm very much looking forward to this.
2: So we'll get started then. So Cedric, you've never worked for big pharma, but you've made a lot of waves in the biotech industry. So we wanted to hear a little bit about your background and how you went from collaborating with a team that performed the first successful hand transplant to actually starting your own company.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I've been very fortunate with a rather unusual path into biotech. Um, I graduated originally from uh, medical school at the University of Leuven in Belgium, and from there uh, went to Argentina. I was in in love with a girl there, was a great reason to leave. (laughs) Went into a residency program, and I had one experience in Argentina that really got me to Louisville, Kentucky. There was one child that came into my practice one day. This child was what we call Foko Milik, was born without one arm and had a what we call a myoelectric prosthesis. So you may have seen these people that have a prosthetic arm that they can move with. And this kid was incredibly handy, like he would wrap things everywhere. And, um, and then at one point, his mom asked him to take something out of his pocket. And he went in his pocket and out his pocket and had to try a couple of times with this prosthesis before being successful. And then something struck me that it's evident but you never think about it, which is that if you don't have sensation in your arm, it's impossible to do anything else than look at what that arm does and use it like a remote tool if you want. Um, and then as, as I was walking home and I was thinking about this, I um, kind of thought back of my medical days and the fact that we have five types of sensation. We have what is called point discrimination, we have pressure sensation, We have proprioception, which is knowing where the position of your joints are and temperature and pain. And then in my apartment, I was working on my laptop and on your mouse, you have point discrimination and pressure. And then I started working, to make a long story short, with that child to try to recreate a form of sensation in that arm by wiring the mouse pads to the back of that child, where when something would move over his fingers, he would feel it on his back. And uh, I'd say the one thing that got me deep into research was this case of one where this child one day told me that his back was feeling like his hand. And um, it, was, it was an emotional moment for me, and I decided that I wanted to go into research. It turned out that the person who was in charge of this, this first hand transplantation program at the University of Louisville, which was, was a big deal back then in 1998 and 1999, had studied at the same university in Cordoba, Argentina, where I was, and invited me to come and uh, join his program. And then also uh, took a, a one-year time period to uh, work as a as a physician on a cruise ship to make some money. Great time, nothing to do with biotech. And then uh, ended up in Louisville, Kentucky, where I uh, was now involved in this hand transplantation program on the research side. Essentially, this lab had discovered the immunosuppressive drugs that allow you to uh, transplant organs that have skin in them. It took literally almost 50 years to to get there from the original kidneys that were transplanted. And while I was doing that, I had uh, my best friend who was going to Harvard Business School at the time and who decided he wanted to participate in the HBS business plan competition. I kind of was peripherally talking about this with him, became involved with that group, And again, to make a long story with a lot of fun stories much shorter, is that uh, this company, which was called Potencia Pharmaceuticals, won the HBS Business Plan competition in 2001. And then afterwards, nobody wanted to work on it. (laughs) It was nothing more than a student project, I guess. But the two key scientists that were there and myself, we got along really, really well. And um, from 2001 to 2003, and we were not even part of the original business plan group, during those two years, we spoke a lot over the phone. And then in 2003, decided that we were going to try to start a company. And that meant getting physically together. And at the time, we got an extraordinary deal from the University of Louisville for the three of us to incubate in Louisville, Kentucky, protected by the university, uh, but with enough freedom to try to do what we wanted to do. And with Potencia Pharmaceuticals, we fell in love with this ancient part of our immune system called Complement. We got very lucky by discovering some initial pathways we got very lucky by finding angel investors that wanted to support us so this was kind of the direct diagonal opposite of starting a biotech company in Boston with a, with a great venture capital firm behind it um, but we fell on some extraordinary and 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 fascinating science where in 2005 potencia kind of came to the fore as being on the you know, on, on the forefront of what was happening with this complement system and a disease called macular degeneration so it was not through large pharma it was through uh many many ups and downs <laughs> very exciting yeah. with a small group of friends in the beginning
2: that's awesome so how's the did the little boy have the hand transplant
1: no, no 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 so uh no the the little boy you know unfortunately I could not continue to work with him because I had to leave but um yeah that was that was the original uh yeah
2: I mean that sounds like kismet you know You go down there, you fall in love, then you find a new reason or, you know, something that you really found fascinating and then went with that um, into Louisville and with, you know, with the investors and everything. So that's great. So now let's just talk about your development of APL2. So APL2 could render a first-in-class drug for treating geographic atrophy and age-related macular degeneration. And then... I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, but I will try. Paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobin PNH. Really good
1: for a first try.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So how is this a revolutionary therapy, and how do you plan to use that research as a springboard to expand into other chronic disease areas?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that you need to know about geographic atrophy is that it is the advanced, and we'll start with that and then get into PNH, it is the advanced form of dry macular degeneration. So many people know wet macular degeneration where you have drugs like Lucentis and ebia. And these are drugs that can essentially dry up your retina when this disease is associated with leakage from blood vessels. But that's all these drugs do. They don't really interfere with the ongoing disease process itself. And this was the main focal point for us. We've been obsessed with this (laughs) for more than a decade now. And uh, all drugs that have been tested in geographic atrophy so far have failed. So there's nothing on the market. So when you go see your doctor and your retina is literally being eaten up by macrophages, there's nothing that can even slow down that process. So that's where we started off from. And we were fascinated by the genetic associations that were discovered between this disease and the complement pathway, and something you need to know about the complement pathway uh, that plays into <clears throat> why we are excited about its role in this disease, is that complement is very, very old. So about 400 million years ago, in the in the in the uh, or- Ordovician period, when we were jawed fish, <laughs> kind of the only defense mechanism we had available to us uh, was this ancient complement system. And what complement does uh, is It floats around, it's about 20 to 25 uh, proteins, enzymes that interact and are highly reactive with each other. Um, But the key factor in that cascade arguably is called complement factor C3, which you should think of as the nexus of an hourglass, where many things can activate it. And once it's activated, many effects come out of that activation point of C3. Now C3 is something that floats around and will randomly react with all the surfaces in your body. And the best way to think of that is that all the cells in your body get painted with red paint. And a cell, when that occurs, has to do two things. One, prevent that paint from amplifying itself because it has a tendency to dramatically do that. Um, And number two, once the amplification has been inhibited, eat that paint up, literally. Like you have to create a fold in your membrane, internalize it, and digest it. And you could say, why do we have to do that? Well, it turns out that 400 million years ago, the only way for our immune system to know whether we were under threat or under assault was to find out whether cells were behaving properly. And behaving properly is quite simply, are they doing their chores? So cells back then that were not cleaning up the paint from their cell surface were in trouble. Either they were sick or they were under attack by bacteria or viruses. And back then, we didn't have so-called T and B cells to be more sophisticated as we do today. Now, again, in the hundreds of millions of years since, our immune system has become what we call adaptive. So now what we do is we go around, we have ways of knowing whether our cells belong to ourselves or not, and then we attack anything that's foreign. It's a highly xenophobic environment (laughs) in a way, the human body. But this ancient system of painting and removing paint continued to sit there. And this is where we believe in the retina something really fascinating is happening. And quite frankly, as you alluded to, something that applies probably to several diseases of aging, especially neurodegenerative conditions, where um, as we grow older, cells are having a hard time dealing with the pains. And if you take the retina and the brain by extension, um, the The task is even harder because these cells use an enormous amount of energy, so about twenty percent of the energy in your body is used in your head uh, and the cleanup of that paint is something that takes a lot of energy. You have to get these membranes internalized and digested, um, and what we think is happening in the retina is that at some point these cells have a hard time keeping up with the cleanup of the paint, and when they start doing that gradually they start neglecting certain functions. You will see in older people that they get lipid depositions in the retina, which are not being cleaned up properly because the cells are not doing their job right. Uh, And then eventually, these cells start exposing paint on their cell surface, and then cells will come around that recognize that paint, and they will start eating these cells. And that then becomes a self-perpetuating process where literally, eventually, the entire macula gets, quote unquote, eaten up. Uh, and you end up being blind now what our lead compound called APL2 does uh, which is unique in its mechanism and uh, something that you know quite frankly we we hadn't planned for but it ended up working that way um, is that it prevents that pain from depositing in the first place and that makes it different from all of the other complement inhibitors that are out there so what it does is it dials down the level of paint that goes on the surface so that these cells can go from being in a deficit situation in terms of cleanup to being in a surplus situation where they can again get into a situation where the the paint is no longer exposed and you slow down the growth of the rate at which these cells are dying. And hopefully, ultimately, you know, uh, get, get maybe potentially, that's the dream of course, be able to stop that process altogether. Um, that's what we did in geographic atrophy. Now, a couple of years ago, to get to your second point on paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, which from now on we'll call PNH, <laughs> is a <laughs> PNH <laughs> is is a very different disease from geographic atrophy, and it is a disease that we, that balances very nicely what we do in the eye. And Let me explain this. PNH is a rare and, when left untreated, lethal disease. Of the bone marrow now in the bone marrow we have stem cells and these stem cells give rise to white blood cells red blood cells and platelets and in pnh um, because of reasons that we don't understand um, a somatic mutation so people can acquire a mutation during their life where all of a sudden you get a dominant clone of stem cells that create red blood cells that cannot properly protect themselves against the accelerated accumulation of pain now on top of that these red blood cells When paint accumulates on the surface, not only do these cells get eaten up like the retina, they also immediately explode for reasons that we won't go into. Now, a a fabulous drug came on the market uh, a little over a decade ago called Soliris. It's a drug that is very good at preventing the red blood cells from exploding, and it's a life-saving therapy in these patients. But in these patients, the accelerated paint accumulation And the secondary mechanism of these cells, like in the retina, being eaten by macrophages is not inhibited. And as a consequence, these patients with PNH, even if they're on treatment with Solaris and their lives have been saved, they continue to suffer from significant anemia, uh, being tired, often from severe transfusion dependency. And that is a problem that we are hoping to solve with the exact same drug that we inject in the eye, but in this case, administered under the skin twice per week.
2: What phase are you in on the trials, the tests for these?
1: So, in both of these programs, we are currently in a phase three clinical development. So, in uh, PNH specifically, we will know at the end of this year in December whether our drug APL2 gives a superior clinical benefit to these patients that were previously on treatment with Solaris.
2: Wow. That's significant.
1: Thank you. Wow. And then in geographic atrophy, it's, it's yeah. a bigger trial, 1,200 patients. Uh, that trial is expected to be fully enrolled in the first quarter of next year. And the year after that, we will know, hopefully, whether the drug will have worked or not.
2: Well, that's exciting. That takes a long time, doesn't it? A lot of people don't understand how long it takes, you know, to go through it, the the
1: science. It takes forever, forever. Yeah. And it's very expensive. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, it can be. So good, good luck with, you know, because phase three and everything, that's, that's really good. You know, there's a lot of failures before that, but that's good news for you guys. So, and for the, you know, the people that you're treating obviously. But um so as you've gone through, you know, this biotech and angel investing and all the different financial parts of um of the company, what have you learned about taking the biotech public?
1: <laughs> you have to be really lucky. <laughs> you need to. I think that what I've learned is that, I mean, I'm I'm not joking. You have to be really, really lucky, no matter how smart you are. And you have to have the good fortune of being surrounded by very, very talented people. I mean, biotech is, you know, as as you could guess, right, extremely hard. We don't understand biology nearly as much as we think we do, which is why we have so many failures. There's a whole ecosystem that is there to develop these drugs. Uh, And finding a point of entry into that world is not easy. It's definitely not easy uh, generally, but doing it out of Louisville, Kentucky, required some important pieces to fall into place. So we were fortunate to to make that happen.
0: After all these years, much of your core team is still together. So what do you think are some key factors in maintaining a successful synergy?
1: Well, I think that, um, look, it's funny because we... Two three years ago, we were only a group of about 20 people. We are now, I think, at 140. We'll be, we're growing very very quickly. We'll be many many more in the next year. And uh, to some extent, both scientifically, and from a company perspective, you retrofit many things into what you have built, into what is now more of a reasonable corporate structure, right? And um, one of these things are building a company culture, which when you're 20 people is organic in a way but when you're many many people you know new people that join need to fit into that know what to expect etc so you retrofit culture you also retrofit science I mean we ended up with these first two indications now we need kind of a 10-year vision on how new indications fit into that Um, but uh, I think that as we retrofit the cultural pieces that gave me some insight into why so many of the people that we worked with initially uh, ended up Honoring us with with pain. So the four key values that we have at Apelles is one, we care. Number two, we are fearless. Number three, we love what we do. And number four, we are compliment which is cheeky between the science and the human compliment, of course. But um, you know, we we take those values really seriously. And when I say we retrofit them, we only wrote them down after thinking about them for days. <laughs> but it was really what we lived through for many, many years. And I think that uh, hopefully people that work with us continue to experience what led these people in the beginning to stay with us, which is that we um, we, we are not a company that's interested in, in sucking the last penny out of the jar. Um, many, you know, we, I like to say we, we are all physicians. I mean, we really care deeply about uh, doing what is right at every level, whether it's internally with our employees or towards the outside world.
0: So Louisville, Kentucky, it's not really a typical place to start a biotech. Um, So what advantages do you think that the area offers to a company like yours?
1: Yeah, uh, so so I love Louisville. I love Kentucky and it it is my home. But again, as I mentioned earlier, for Potencia initially and then afterwards Sapelis, to have been able to, to grow there required a lot of things to come together in a good way. Through all of that, so I'm now talking since, since, 2000, and, uh, since 2000 quite frankly, the, the city of Louisville and the state of Kentucky have been incredibly helpful to us to, um, to build out what we have there. Uh, but that help is of course limited. There is a whole part to the ecosystem, the expertise, the qualifications that are needed. And especially when you have to grow very quickly, finding the right people to join uh, can be challenging. So I'd say, on a positive side, Louisville, Kentucky offered us you know a, an amount of support on a government level on a on a um, University of Louisville level, just on a kindness of the people level that you will be hard pressed to find anywhere else on the other hand kind of the the harder part is that there is there is no venture capital really worth speaking about uh, other than Chrysalis ventures, which doesn't really do that many investments in biotech. The whole ecosystem piece and then, and then the manpower, the people that you need to do drug development are not available there either. The closest that you have in terms of biotech or pharma is Eli Lilly, which is Indianapolis, which is two hours away. And that's kind of your only resource to go to.
0: That makes sense. So, Cedric, there there's one more thing that's interesting uh, on your resume that we really... We want to dig a little deeper into earlier in the episode you were talking about how you worked on a cruise ship. So how do you fit working on a cruise ship into your professional journey? And did you learn any life lessons from that?
1: <laughs> I learned many life lessons from that. <laughs> um and, <Uh-oh>. uh, <laughs> we're not going to dive into here but, <laughs> but uh no, I think that's Look, it, it taught me unbelievable things, right? I mean, it was I was uh, at the time uh, 26 or 27, and I really did not know what I was getting into. Uh, it was at Carnival Cruise Science at the time. And had I known at the time what I was going to have to treat, I would have run as fast as I could <laughs> because I wasn't really sure that I'd be able to handle that. But as I was on the cruise ship, you know, it turned out that I had been well-trained, that all of these things went went very well. And it also taught me for the first time uh, to be responsible for not just passengers, but also for the crew. Uh, so many people that work on these ships come from poorer countries. Um, you know, they work supremely hard. And then at the end of the week or end of the month, they send their money their money back home. So being, being a physician, I call it almost a village physician, to the crew on these cruise ships. Or, yeah, But that was really very special. And if there's one thing that I um, learned there is that is the, the quality of time, I mean, just being able to spend five or 10 minutes with people that just seek a presence can make a, a world of difference. And today in is the one thing that I try to apply is I, I really try to be there for people. And you know, I do that because I love it, but also selfishly, it's something that I think really helps us build a great company.
2: Well, thank you, Cedric. You're a very special person. I've really, we've really enjoyed speaking with you and learning more about you and your company. We wish you the best of luck. So thanks for being with us here today. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for spending time with me.
2: Fingerpaint. Never paint by number. Fingerpaint.com
0: And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from pharma
1: execs. Hi, everyone. My name is Cédric François. I'm uh, the CEO of Apedis Pharmaceuticals, a biotech company based in Waltham, Massachusetts, doing exciting work in a range of immune-mediated conditions. And my leadership tip for young entrepreneurs that try to start a company is the following, which I learned through a lot of pain (laughs) and really continues to help me every day. Things are never as good as they seem, and things are never as bad as they seem. Um, that is all I have to say to you today. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's PharmExec podcast sponsored by Finger Paint. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the FarmExec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at FarmExec, on Instagram at FarmExecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email Editorial Director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mmhgroup.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mmhgroup.com.